everyone, and welcome to In the Spotlight, Goodspeed Musicals podcast, where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I'm Michael Fling, one of the members of the artistic staff here at Goodspeed, and I'm so pleased to be joined by Goodspeed's artistic associate and resident dramaturg, definitely a 10 for dance and a 10 for looks, Annika Chapin. Hi, Annika. Hi. That was actually going to be my joke, but it was going to be dance three, looks, eh, six. (laughs) That's terrible. Um... In case listeners don't understand that reference, Annika, why don't you uh, remind us how we picked the show for this episode? Well, this was a first for us. It is our 15th episode. And so in honor of that, we put it to the people and we had them choose between three shows, Camelot, Cats, and A Chorus Line. And of the three C's, the results were really overwhelming. They were uh, more overwhelming than I would have thought. I thought that Cats was going to make (laughs) a a play but uh nope really uh chorus line was a a very distinct winner although both of the other shows have their fans and i think we will end up doing both of them at some point but yes we will be diving into a chorus line which uh per its credits was conceived and originally directed and choreographed by michael bennett although we'll talk about that a book by james kirkwood and nicholas dante music by marvin hamlish lyrics by edward Kleben, and co-choreographed by Bob Avian. And that will bring us to the speed test. Hudson's Floorwax doesn't matter. Hudson's Floorwax doesn't matter. Hudson's Floorwax doesn't matter. Hudson's Floorwax doesn't matter. Where I do my best to summarize the plot of a chorus line in one minute. So, Annika, do you have one minute on the clock? I do indeed. I feel rather confident in my ability to summarize chorus line in under a minute. All right. Well, I've got the minute, so. As they say, a five, six, seven, eight plot. So we got a lot of dancers trying to get a job in a Broadway musical. Uh, somewhat tyrannical director Zach, director choreographer Zach, uh, wants them all, instead of a normal audition process, to tell their life stories and pick at personal wounds. Uh, and then eight of them get a job at the end. That's the plot. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that is the very economical and completely complete version of the plot. Honestly, it probably would have been more of a game to see how many of the characters' names I can remember in one minute slash what they do in the show. Um, I have to be honest and say I'm pretty. I kind of need a cheat sheet on the names of the characters, which is I would lose my lose my theatrical card by some people's estimation because I do not remember all. 18 names of the characters in course line, but we'll dive into that a little bit too, as we, as we go. And with that, that will bring us to why God, why? Why God, why today? Where we'll talk about the main idea of the show, the thing that connects all the characters and why the authors, and in this case, director and choreographer wanted to tell the story. And, you know, course line, there's a lot to, talk about and analyze with Chorus Line, I think, uh, in a way, in ways that people uh, often forget how complex the show is and how difficult the show is and so and how revolutionary it is in so many ways. But I think the the governing purpose, for me at least, of the show is is that dignity of the individual and the humanity of artists and dancers and what they go through in order to put something on stage. Um, I think 
those those themes while like you know parallel to each other do are a little different and i think people think about it as a love letter to broadway and show business and dancing which it certainly is but i think it has a universal appeal um particularly in that original production which is why i i generalize it more to the dignity of the individual because i think um i, I just remember and i'll tell this story because it has impacted the way i view chorus line but um my mom, who is not necessarily a theatrical person, but a dear uh, friend of the program and listener, so hi, mom, uh, but saw that original Broadway production and talked about um, how much of an impact it had on her because she felt this big affinity with the dancers that they were like doing so much just to get by and so much to be in consideration on that line. And she found that to be super resonant with her and with her generation. So that's always kind of been the prism through which I have viewed the show. Uh, but Annika, talk about that duality a little bit and how um, so many artists relate to Chorus Line versus how the masses relate to Chorus Line. Yeah, well, I think that's a really good point. I mean, certainly this is a show that celebrates the industry of theater and the arts more than any other show that I can really think of. But it's interesting when I think of this show, and we'll talk more about this later, but this show does a pretty brilliant thing where they, it manages to be both incredibly specific in its setting, in its time, in its people, in what they want, which is a very specific goal that does not apply to most people in the world. But it manages to make you feel like what you have seen is something that is about the biggest largest, most visceral human themes. It's really about how you choose to live your life, um, about an entire life cycle, and about the decision to follow your passion, really, and whether that's a good or a bad decision. And I, I think actually that's a more ambiguous thing in the show than, than it's given credit for. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to talk about it. it the show's hard to pick apart. It doesn't, um, it doesn't follow a lot of the, in some ways it's breaking the format of our show as much as it breaks the format of musical theater, but because it doesn't have a traditional development process or journey or even like ways of talking about it, yeah. um, because it is kind of a singular experience and a singular sensation. I was just break. gonna say. Um, but it, it does have like, it, because it is so complex when talking about it, but I don't know that, I, I think it's weirdly often for how much it is treasured by people, I think it's often cheapened um, about what it's about and how it's produced and how difficult it is. And uh, the real requirement to be a triple threat that you must be able to do all three and do all three triple threat being singing, acting and dancing. You must be able to do all three in order to be in this show as one of the people on the line. Yeah, very much. And it's also, it's a complicated Genesis. It's a complicated story in terms of uh, it as a show, as a successful show. Um, there's so many things that have happened in the, in the history of the show that mirror in some ways, the choices that are made by the characters in the show, that it's a really interesting kind of snake eating its own tail piece. So Annika, why don't you take us back to before and tell us about the origins of A Chorus Line? We can never go back 
Well, sure. I mean, this is a weird one because normally I'm here talking about, you know, Puccini or Victor Hugo or Damon Runyon or this, you know, whatever the source material is that inspired this show. And this is truly a show that sprouted very much from its time and its place. It has no source material other than the very active lives of the people who first created it. So, so in the winter of 1973, it was a bad time for Broadway. There had been a number of notable flops. Shows were just flopping left and right. And there were fewer shows being made every year. So there was not a lot of work for dancers who were in, the people who populated these shows because they were closing fast. The opportunities were closing down. Um, the style of the show was was shifting a little bit. So the the kind of work that they were getting was not the same kind of work that they wanted to be doing. So two dancers, Tony Stevens and Michonne Peacock, who were both working Broadway dancers and seeing what was happening in the industry and noticing that there was less and less work and also that some of the work was frustrating for the dancers who wanted to be doing more than they were doing, who wanted to be triple threats, who wanted to act as well as uh, dance and sing. They had this idea to do at first sort of a repertory professional resident company of these dancers and to make work for this company. So it would be dancers sort of creating work for themselves. Um, and I should say performers because they weren't only dancers, they were triple threats. And so that was where they really started with this idea. Um, and they had both appeared in the Cy Coleman musical Seesaw, which was directed by Michael Bennett. And there's a little bit of controversy about who actually had this idea. And you, you see a lot of different versions of how the show came together over time. Bayork Lee has a great quote where she calls this whole thing 19 Rashomon, which of course is a reference to Rashomon, the movie where you see the same event from the perspective of several different people and it's different from each person. But Chorus Line had a lot of people involved in the beginning and you get a lot of different versions. But anyway, some say that Michael Bennett, who was this genius choreographer, creator, creative mind, had also had an idea to do a dance musical about dancers, but didn't really have anything beyond that. So he got involved because there was this connection. And the idea came about to do uh, basically a story collecting evening where they would invite several of their dancer friends, people in this community to come together and just basically talk about some stuff. But it was a little unclear for these people what it was going to be. And a lot of them were very nervous about it because they, Michael Bennett was kind of a big deal. Um, they felt nervous sharing stuff in front of him, who they auditioned for, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But basically this is what they did. They had space in a studio um, on Third Avenue starting at midnight on a Saturday night so that the people who were in shows could make it and be showered and clean after their shows. Um, anywhere between 15 and 22 people came to this first night, which is kind of hilarious and says a lot about just how very many versions of this story there are. The fact that there's like a difference of seven people who may or may not have been a part of this. But it was the small group. They started out by exercising, which is such a dancer thing to do. I, I would have been, you know, invite me to anything at midnight on a Saturday and tell me it's going to start with a dance workout. I'm going to be like, hells no, I'm leaving. Goodbye. But, and they sat around and this 
group just started to sort of share their stories. Michael Bennett kind of broke the ice by sharing a lot of details about his own past. He told a story about um, having gotten a girl pregnant in the company of West Side Story, which he had been a dancer in, um, and about how he was sort of not sure about his sexuality. So to have someone who was sort of in a position of power in the room be the person who was opening up allowed everybody else to really open up. And from there, it lasted about 12 hours. They left at noon the next day and people shared all sorts of stuff about their childhood, about the industry, about the work, about their relationships. There was a set of sisters who were telling things to each other that no, they had never really actually said aloud and they were saying it in this group. By all accounts, it was this amazingly special session um, that was taped, that Michael Bennett taped on um, eight tracks, I think. And it just was, was something else. Everybody who was there felt it was something really, really special. And a lot of the stories that were shared in that first session ended up verbatim becoming some of the monologues that were in the show. So this was truly the DNA of the show that became Chorus Line being built right in that very moment, over 12 hours downtown on a Saturday night. Yeah, so they gather at this studio and talk for 12 hours over lots of red wine and Michael Bennett records it. Uh, and that becomes the first of what kind of became a series of these meet meetups. I think uh, there, you know, all the accounts of how the show, as you said, like came to be are different and varied and even like the, the seminal kind of book on the creation, which is um, called on the line like has blatant facts that are not correct in terms of when things premiered and when things happened. And there are contradictory stories about when things enter the show, when they leave the show. I mean, it, it's in, insane and very interesting um, toward the creation. But uh, essentially this get, this all rolls up into Michael Bennett has this idea and he goes to Joseph Papp, who was the artistic director of the New York Shakespeare Festival, also known as the Public Theater. And he says, look, I've got this idea. I want to workshop it. Um, will you give me space? Joseph Papp says yes. And I'll, and like you get this many people and they'll get $100 a week, which is like nothing. Uh, but they started with this first workshop of this idea that he roped in Marvin Hamlish, who had just won an Oscar, um, had won a few Oscars, I think, by this point uh, for um, composing music. And he's going to do the music. And... Um, but they just start to develop this idea. Um, and without getting too much into it, they would ex do morning dance explorations and then in the afternoon talk about their lives and ask probing questions and all the things. After, you know, this end, this workshop culminates in a four and a half hour presentation for Joseph Papp, uh, where it's basically a bunch of monologues and a few songs of the show. And everyone's like, yeah, I think there's something here. So uh, they have to go back and get more money for a second workshop. And they get a second workshop, at which at which point James Kirkwood comes on board as a co-book writer uh, to really help shape the show because it still didn't have a shape. That second workshop after a couple weeks ends in a five and a half hour presentation for Joseph Papp, which he liked, but basically he's like, I can't give any more money to support this. It doesn't fiscally makes sense. Um, and then uh, the president of the board of the public, Lou Esther Mertz, uh, ends up writing a check for 
the continued development and a workshop production of this show. So, you know, it goes through a kind of on a very untraditional process at that point with this nature of workshop and um, writing specifically for actors and using their stories. And the the interesting part, I mean, there are lots of interesting parts of it, really, but the the noted part is essentially all of the dancers who had told these stories and had been a part of this workshop process each had to like audition to be themselves in the show and ultimately um end up signing agreements that they you know the authors have the rights to their lives and their stories for one dollar each and an equal percentage split of 1% of the gross of whatever this show is going to be, which everyone thinks is special, but no one knows that it's going to become the, you know, cultural sensation that it is. So basically it amount, amounts to like a few cents for all these actors for every thousand dollars made for the show, which is just kind of wild to think about as, and it kind of became the standard deal for the workshop contract that Actors' Equity ends up working off of. And it becomes this like precedent setting, quote unquote type thing, but it's actually really not remotely fair to the actors for what they're giving, I think. But that's maybe just personal opinion. Uh, but, uh, and so this workshop production, they keep, you know, working at it and refining it and all these monologues about their lives kind of become this montage sequence known as that become the song hello 12 hello 13 hello and what i think is actually really interesting about the way they crafted the show is that i hadn't realized until diving into it and really looking at it is all of the stories and the way that they progress through the story it starts with everyone like as a child and their youngest memories and then it gets to puberty and then it gets to older and like it does kind of journey through their lives collectively in an age sense which I honestly hadn't really realized until I looked into it but it's a, a very interesting and fascinating way that they went about it um but yeah I mean it, it the there are I mean there are tons of stories that we could go on for hours and hours and hours um about the various accounts of what happened. Um, I think it's really fascinating that the finale one was originally conceived to have an audience member pulled up on stage to be made to feel like a star, even though these ensemble people were the ones doing all the work that, you know, obviously that concept is abandoned and the number, but that number still remains as a very like psychological comment on the whole show and the dancers experiences and, uh, you know, all that. So it premieres on April 15th of 1975. And I only know that because it is the day before my birthday. Uh, and it's a huge smash right out the gate. Uh, everyone, the reviews were absolutely out, out of the park. Uh, and it sells tons of tickets to the public. And it's a very weak season for Broadway um, by many accounts. And so it pretty much immediately transfers to Broadway, which at the time was not common. And a couple of quick fun stories from the preview process at the public. One is Neil Simon actually came in and was a show doctor for the show and wrote a ton of jokes. Apparently he doesn't even remember what all he wrote. Um, but uh, I, there are various stories about the things that people are sure that he wrote, which um, is just funny because Michael Bennett wanted the show to be even funnier than it was and wanted that levity in there and so neil simon was a part of that and originally the 
the dancers that were chosen for the show within the show that we don't know the name of uh, were supposed to be chosen each night by the actor who played Zach. And it was supposed to be based on their performance that night and who would get the job that um, was absolutely thrown out the window. One, because the wardrobe staff was like, that is awful for us in terms of accomplishing what is already a very difficult quick change. And two, um, Marsha Mason, who was married to Neil Simon at the time, uh, came and told uh, Michael Bennett that the audience would never forgive him for not giving Cassie a spot in the ensemble. And so from that moment on, Cassie won a role in the show because she'd done everything right all night and has the audience's heart. So just those two, those two little fun facts about the development. But I mean, there are, for the interesting things that those are, there are a myriad of those kinds of stories over the various workshop processes and previews of the public and everything. Yeah. And it went on to get uh, 12 Tony nominations. It won nine of them. And it won the Pulitzer Prize for Best uh, Drama, which is still a very rare thing. To this day, there are only 10 musicals that have won that prize. So it was just a smash. And there are lots of international productions. There's been only one Broadway revival, although there's another one rumored for 2025, although I think that rumor was happening before this all happened. So who knows? But... Yeah, it's it's still very popular. And and then of course there was in terms of less popular things, they made a movie version in 1985 that is not considered a great movie version of a thing. Um it is not very good. But yeah, it's not a celebrated adaptation. No, it is not. So Kelly Bishop who played Sheila in the original production uh, said a very funny thing about Richard Attenborough, who was the director of the movie, had been on a talk show and he said, this is the story of a bunch of kids trying to break into show business. And she was like, oh my God, like if Richard Attenborough said that, then he clearly had no understanding of what this show was, which was very much not about people trying to break into show business. It's about people who are working in show business and a very different part of life. So I thought that was kind of a funny example of why that movie was uh, not so hot. Well, but also part of the, you know, I think the misunderstanding of the show now is that it's about a bunch of young people. It's really not. It's about people who are established dancers who still have to fight for every job that they get. Yeah. If anything, it's kind of they're hanging on more than they're trying to break in. I think the other, the other thing to note too about it's like life after beyond being considered one of the great, um, greatest musicals of all time. Uh, it certainly is Michael Bennett's stamp on Broadway and his, um, we've talked about him with the development of dream girls previously, but it really is his, uh, his masterpiece, uh, and still very much is to this day. And I think for a lot of younger people in the business, um, it is the subject of a documentary called every little step that is about the casting process of the 2006 revival that uh, I feel like is now a staple of um, college and high school theater programs everywhere. So with that, Annika, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside at the ballet. What's inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside. All right, so let us dive into at the ballet, one of my favorite songs from the score, and not a short song, but I think we can hop through it so it's not too crazy long. 
So I'm going to be listening to the original cast recording. So if you want to go listen to it uh, in full, do that and then come on back. If you know it pretty well, then just keep listening. And of course, we're going to be listening to Carol Bishop, who goes by Kelly Bishop some of the time, most of the time, as Sheila, K. Cole as Maggie, and Nancy Lane as BB. So have a listen and then come back. All right. So this song is towards the beginning of the show. Um, it's definitely in the childhood section. It's one of the key childhood songs, um, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And it's originally started because Zach is asking Sheila, who is sort of a force of nature to open up and she's a powerhouse and she clearly is someone who's usually in control. She's very sexy. Uh, she makes a joke about sometimes she's aggressive. Um, she's not used to being in a place of vulnerability. So he asks her about how she started ballet and she talks about her mother wanting to be a ballerina and her father stopping that. And so her mother transferred the dreams to Sheila and then she lets it slip that uh, she wanted to be a ballerina early, anything to get out of the house. And this is the song that happens once she is pushed, basically, by, by Zach to explain what she means. And it goes into this kind of dream world because Chorus Line does have this reality reality of what they're saying in the audition. And then sometimes that goes into this sort of alternate reality, their memories, their experiences, um, something a little bit different. So she goes into this a little bit of a dream world. The, the chorus line steps away behind her and she is left basically in this memory. Daddy always thought that he married beneath him. That's what he said, that's what he said. When he proposed, he informed my mother he was probably her very last chance. And though she was 22, Though she was 22, though she was 22, she married him. So this is the first thing we get about this song. It dives right in, obviously, because it's a continuous action. Um, she's just speaking. She's in this audition. And then she goes right into the song. Um, and from this music, we know where this memory is located again Sheila is not a vulnerable person she doesn't like opening up she doesn't like being in a position where she's sharing things that are kind of squidgy and interior but she does share here and we know that this is not a comfortable place because we can hear it in this music it's this kind of agitated sort of visceral churning music um, and it's not entirely pleasant to listen to you know there's something kind of like dirty about it, a little bit uncomfortable. It feels like a real gut kind of music. So we're hearing for her what she's feeling, even though she's not telling us yet where those feelings are coming from. She's still kind of controlled. She's still a little bit arch. And she's telling the story about her parents at this point, still in a way that's like, well, here's here's a story for you. She's very much in control of her feelings still. We can see it slip a tiny, tiny bit, and though she was 22, because everything stops, and she repeats it so many times. You know, she, she really is 
stuck on this idea that her mother was only 22 when she decided to believe this man who said that she would never find a better option. And obviously this was not a good option. This man was not a kind, good man. And that repetition in that moment is so simple and yet so effective. Life with my dad wasn't ever a picnic, more like a come as you are. When I was five, I remember my mother dug earrings out of the car. I knew that they weren't hers, but it wasn't something you'd want to discuss. He wasn't warm. Well, not to her. Well, not to us. And I love this, too, because she's telling more stories in the same kind of tone about just how unpleasant this relationship was she finds examples when she's just a little kid of her dad cheating on her mother but they don't talk about it it's just not it's it's not a good thing but then she has this line about he wasn't warm well not to her and then well not to us and it's the first time we've actually heard her talking about herself and her relationship with her dad here because it's interesting when she starts talking about her childhood before she starts singing the song it feels like she's got a lot of uh energy directed at her mother who had this dream that she transferred on to her daughter we don't hear about the dad really much before then but then as soon as the song sings and as soon as she gets into the real emotion of it she's actually really protective of her mother she's telling the story about you know how could her mother have believed this man you know that that her mother could have done better that her mother had to experience things like the proof that her father was cheating all the time and how bad that was she clearly was a kid who knew what was happening and pretty much located it very much on her father protective of her mother but here she slips a little bit and just acknowledges that he wasn't warm to either of them it wasn't only her mother that got the brunt of this it was also her self but that's kind of a trigger for her it's a little bit what sends her into this other music but everything was beautiful at the ballet graceful men lift lovely girls in white all right and now we have this first instance of this ballet music and it's just worlds different from that churning kind of dark internal music that was before this opens up into this beautiful melodic lilting Uh, melody and it's such a beautiful musical portrait of what she's singing about which is just how different the worlds were for her we can see in the music so clearly what she's talking about and it's interesting to note here that the image that she starts with here is graceful men lift lovely girls in white There's such a clever lyrical thing here that Ed Kleban is doing. So this is Sheila's image of ballet. Graceful men lift lovely girls in white. It's not the first image I would think of when I think of the ballet, and it's not going to be the same image that the other two women think of. But for Sheila, who had this awful, cold, closed off and cruel father who is the opposite of supportive, it's the image she connects to first. It's very different in terms of the gender roles to what she sees at home, right? She never sees a man lifting up a woman. She never sees a graceful man. This dynamic of two people working together is really clearly completely different from what she's experienced. 
Yes, everything was beautiful at the ballet. I was happy at the ballet. That's when I started class. And the second part of this section gets a little bit more wistful. We can hear that sort of dreamlike longing for something different, but it, it feels a little bit more separated from the pure fantasy of the memory. So it's transitioning back into the reality. Uh, she was happy there, but to say that comes with the knowledge that she was so unhappy at home. And you get those beautiful falling reeds at the end, just trippingly bringing you back from these lofty heights back to earth. And at the ballet is so beautifully punctuated and kind of feels a little bit like one of the exercises you do in a ballet class. Up a steep and very narrow stairway To the voice like a metronome Up a steep and very narrow stairway It wasn't paradise It wasn't paradise It wasn't paradise But it was home there's so much about this section I love. The close together notes climbing up on up a steep and very narrow stairway um, with that higher note to, to signal that it's climbing up. You can kind of hear what that staircase looks like, right? It's a little old building. It's got uneven stairs. Uh, it's all right there. It's not a fancy place. And then I love also that the teacher is not really a character in this song at all. It's not like any of these women found a substitute parent in their teacher, which is obviously something that you do hear sometimes, but it's just a voice like a metronome. That's what the teacher is. It's just a source of order, something that keeps the pace and not even necessarily a human being. So it's not about that person. It's something else entirely. And then we get that wonderful, it wasn't paradise, it wasn't paradise, it wasn't paradise. And all three of them are now have entered this kind of memory dance space. And then that punctuated, but it was home. Again, echoing that ballet exercise and um, something that was shared between the three of them, even though they're not actually really singing together, they're each in their own little section. Mother always said I'd be very attractive when I grew up, when I grew up. Different, she said, with a special something and a very, very personal flair. And though I was eight or nine, though I was eight or nine, though I was eight or nine, I hated her. Now, different is nice, but it sure isn't pretty. Pretty is what it's about. I never met anyone who was different, who couldn't figure that out. So beautiful, I'd never live to see. But it was clear, if not to her, well then to me. Told you we would skip through some stuff. So this is the second section. This is BB singing, which is a character we haven't really seen that much of. And actually, this is kind of the most we get of BB in the show. Um, but we get all we need from the song. And she's articulating a similar kind of pain. Obviously, this, the music is the same. It's that kind of still churning, visceral anger and pain from this childhood thing but hers is very different this is not about her father and her mother it's not about that relationship at all 
it's something different. It's her mother. She's really angry at her mother, but she's angry at her mother for telling her that she was going to be beautiful in some way. This is a very complicated emotional thing. And it rings so true, I think, to a lot of people. I mean, I think if you're a girl in this country slash probably in this world, the line where she says pretty is what it's about, you know, it, it feels very, very real. I know exactly what that feels like when you're a kid and you're growing up and it feels like the best thing you could possibly hope to be is pretty. And obviously for Bibi, it was kind of traumatic the fact that she was never going to be pretty although i think she's also being a little hard on herself here when she says beautiful i'd never live to see as though it's the end of her life and she's still in her 20s i mean she's she's got plenty of time i think she's i think she's a little bit overreacting but we get that bitterness at i hated her that's where we get that pause so she clearly is still working out some active stuff about her mother This section that she has here is different than Sheila's too. It's not everything was beautiful at the ballet. It's everyone was beautiful at the ballet, which is clearly for her exactly what she's talking about. She wasn't beautiful in her everyday life, but in the ballet, everybody is beautiful. If you're a dancer, you're a beautiful dancer. And so it's so fitting that the image that she picks as the sort of generic image of the ballet, just as Sheila picked the graceful men lifting lovely girls in white is every prince has got to have his swan. And of course that's a reference to Swan Lake. The swan is the most beautiful creature in the world, delicate and feminine and seductive and beautiful. And so for her, she's chosen the most iconic, beautiful ballet character who of course attracts the beautiful prince. That's what's resonated for her so much. I love that little moment at the ballet. Hey, they each had that little moment, which I feel like is is for each of them a little moment of both sharing because it's kind of the kind of thing where you're looking for commonality. You say that to people when you're like, yeah, right? You know, it's sort of like a hey, right? But it's also there's something about it that sounds like they've just gotten lost in their memories a little bit. I think it's a lovely little addition that you don't really expect, you know, to start the song in this very performative way. It's an audition. They're sharing their stories. They're sharing their stories because they sort of have to. Zach is asking them to go into this liminal space and then have this little moment. It's just like a little personal thing that I think is really nice. Up a steep and very narrow stairway To the voice like a metronome Up a steep and very narrow that every time they do that it just gets a little bit more complex and interesting it's like they're kind of growing and learning over the course of the song i don't know what they were for against really except each other i mean i was born to save their marriage but when my father came to pick my mother up at the hospital he said
said, well, I thought this was going to help, but I guess it's not. Anyway, I did have a fantastic fantasy life. I used to dance around the living room with my arms up like this. My fantasy was that it was an Indian chief. And he'd say to me, Maggie, do you want to dance? And I'd say, Daddy, I would love to dance. So this is Maggie. This is the third singer in this in this section, in this song. And she doesn't get a sung part to tell us about her childhood, which reminds us a little bit about the audition reality of this, that even though this song is structured like this, I think we're expected to think that it, it covers each of these women coming forward and sharing their personal childhood stories, which is kind of, it's almost a montage in that way. And although Maggie has a similar story to Sheila, a cold father and a bad parental relationship, um, what seems to dominate her memory is the wistful fantasy of it being different, of her father being loving. And her music is very different here. Obviously, she doesn't have that kind of like churning, angry, um, painful music that the other two have. She has this sort of, you can hear the, the ghostly echo of the at the ballet music. She's dreaming of dancing in her family life it's a slightly different integration of what dance means to her and it's thrown in in such a childish way with this dream of being an Indian chief she wanted to be an Indian chief which is so kind of heartbreaking because placing them together she wanted to be an Indian chief and she would raise her hands and her dream was that her dad would say Maggie, I would love to dance, basically, that her father would dance with her. And this clearly has nothing to do with the Indian chief, or maybe it does. I don't know. Sometimes kids have those fantasy logic, which makes sense in a charming way. But what it does is kind of frame both of those elements as being equally unrealistic. Obviously, she could never really be an Indian chief in the way that she's dreaming as a kid. And she's probably never going to have a father who was willing to dance with her in a loving way. So it's kind of an interesting, different way of treating these memories that these, these women have and also just framing Maggie differently. This is not someone who's really bitter about her childhood. She's still a little bit in that dream. She kind of has less pain about it but there's still that sort of wistfulness and uh she's she's kind of emotionally more comfortable being there but it was clear when he proposed that i was born to help them every gen that's what he said that's what she said i used to dance around the living room he wasn't So then we get this cool dreamlike section where the three women's stories are coming together, overlapping in little snippets. Um, it kind of could be any of them singing any of these lines. It sort of feels like, and they're all singing this, um, there's this, this do-do-do behind them. And it feels kind of like a daydream where it's all just overlapping. And these other women are, are almost a little bit present by the do-do-do's as well. So this could be any of them potentially. And it's kind of an interesting section of these childhood memories, the snippets of childhood memories and the ma magic of ballet coexisting in this sort of daydream, which is of course kind of what happened in their life. They did have ballet and the magic of ballet and the darkness of their childhoods at the very same time. It was an
my god i mean it's the note it's the big note in this song um but before we get there let's talk about maggie getting to sing she gets her own little melody here it's it's different than whatever we've seen before um and it it gets to be a musical illustration of the dream she had of her father wanting to dance with her again it's different music because it's a different tone for her um a lot more melodic a lot more um longing in it rather than anger in it and then it transitions to her version of the chorus that everyone sings um and she sings everything was beautiful not everyone like bb so again like sheila it's not about her personal beauty it's about um ballet being in her case the actual representation the actual coming to life of what her dream was of dancing around the living room right it was something that she could look at and it was so beautiful and she couldn't really have it in life but she could have it at the ballet and i love that her phrase that represents the ballet is raise your arms and someone's always there which is obviously the perfect thing for her the sad lonely child who danced with her arms up literally dreaming of her dad being there for her and so she dreams of the ballet where there's always someone to dance with you because you're at the ballet it's full of dancers it's all people who will dance with you and then of course there's this fabulous and completely impossible note and it just takes over her entire self there for a second it's a high belt i think it's an e and it just kind of claws out of her gut sort of i mean it's a such a hard note to hit and when you watch people hit it you can see them sort of uh push this note out and it almost feels like this is maggie's version of the music that sheila and bb sang um that kind of turning dark music that visceral music this is this is her version of that it's something deeply internal and visceral that she's kind of unleashing and then she unleashes this full-on dream of the ballet and at this point we can see all of the dancers who are sort of in the background fully dancing in this moment it just only is this music and the ballet comes to life the ballet class comes to life all of what they're singing about fully comes to life behind them here it is So we really get to see what they have been talking about because obviously previously to this in the show and really um, at any point in the show, this isn't a ballet show. So we're not really seeing ballet. We're seeing uh, contemporary jazz, you know, musical theater dancing of the seventies, but not proper ballet. And that this is what we're seeing here. They're sharing it with us. Yes, everything was beautiful at the so lovely so they all sing together in harmony at the end and they each get a line that punctuates and sums up their respective stories and then it ends on this slightly melancholy note they have those falling reeds again which is such a beautiful i mean you can just see the the ballerinas you can just see the the core doing that 
in that moment in those in those little tripping down notes it's so pretty and then you get this kind of more grounded place those few notes at the very end which kind of pull through a darker place and ends on something a little bit hopeful with like a touch of triangle at the very end and it's kind of a great place to end for the song they've each been through a lot they've had this thing be the light in their lives up until this point and now they are here right it's it's i'm still here sort of <laughs> in a very different way but this song which really encompasses a lot we get three full childhoods we get the psychology of three different women who have a lot in common but also some things that are definitely not in common and then at the end it just feels like we've we've been through it with them we really get this moment and the, the music reflects that for us we get to see the beauty of the ballet but we also get to be brought back into the world of the rehearsal room where they are it's it's something really wonderful uh, to pull through here and then of course after this it just goes completely back to auditions you know it, it just moves on as though this never really happened which maybe it didn't really because again it's it's taking place in this sort of elevated space but we see it and we're getting a kind of a lifeline right into these characters so it's it's yet another way that the show makes us deeply care about these people whose lives are both totally normal not special and deeply, deeply special. So it's just a fantastic song. And that will bring us to one of our favorite segments, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the issues, internal and external to the show. So the show is so unusual in so many ways and how it's structured and things uh, and its development, development process, certainly. But Annika, you raised a really interesting point that I had never thought about before in its that's inherent to its structure in that it really lacks a singular protagonist. Um, it kind of collectively, everyone is, the, all the dancers are the protagonist, and Zach is the antagonist, I think, in so many ways. Um, it's not necessarily the case, but it, it certainly has that tension about it. So, um, you know, what, how... How does that impact the show and how people approach it and how audiences react to it? And, you know, just how, how does it set apart? It is very individual in that way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's part of what makes this show so fascinating is because it's a very unusual structure, which is, as you said, there's really not a singular protagonist, which is something that might seem like not a big deal. But if you go back to basic dramatic structure since the end of time, it's very, very difficult not to have one character whose journey you're following through, who has to learn something. And this story, clearly, I think Cassie is, is if there is said to be someone who sort of operates like that, it would be Cassie. But at the same time, Cassie doesn't really have to learn anything or change over the course of the show. You're just following her a little bit more. Um, and one of the things that I find really fascinating about this show as a dramaturg is that they've done something that is so wild and so brilliant, which is that they've taken all these stories and instead of having one kind of spine of the story that gets pulled through, which is normally what your protagonist's journey would be, they've basically put it into a superstructure, which is that 
the idea of the audition and who is going to get the part is so strong that that operates a little bit as your story spine, but they've also done a brilliant other thing, which you mentioned earlier, which is that they're bringing you through the entire story of a life. So childhood to adolescence, to adulthood, to death really, which is what I did for love ultimately. What I did for love, which is all of these dancers thinking about what's gonna happen when they can't dance anymore, um, is told from the perspective of someone looking back on their life. It's, it's all past tense, you know, what I did for love. And what you feel when you're watching it, maybe not consciously, is that you have watched these people grow from their childhood selves who wanted to be dancers to the adolescents who were dealing with what that means to the adults to now people who are dead, basically. There's a real life and death thing that the show sets up. Um, both in terms of its timeline and in terms of the stakes, because it really does feel like when people are, when Paul hurts his knee and he's carried off, it does feel like this is the end of his life. You really feel that in the audience. So anyway, so they've, they've done this very interesting thing where they, they haven't just given you a bunch of stories and they're not asking you to really connect with any particular one in terms of a traditional journey, but they've put it in this larger structure um, to such a degree that you don't even care or notice because you are totally fine being propelled by this superstructure. And I just think it is fascinating and totally brilliant. And honestly, I don't think this show would have worked if they hadn't imposed that kind of thing on it. I don't think if you just had a bunch of people who are auditioning and the first person was telling a funny story about going to the coffee shop yesterday and then the next person was telling a story about what their childhood was like and then the other person was telling a story about like, oh, you know, this other thing that happened to them the other day or their mom. You know, if you were just grabbing these stories from random pieces of life, I think you would feel unsatisfied as an audience member because you, were, you would be at some point like, okay, well, what are we watching for? Which is always the question that you, you have as an audience member. You know, what are we what are we waiting to see? And usually that's the protagonist's journey. We're watching to see this character do this, learn this, try to achieve this blank. Um, but with this show, what we're watching is all of these people grow up and all of these people kind of go towards this inevitable end, which is both getting the part or not getting the part, but also the inevitable end for all of us, which is the moment where we have to look back and think, this is what I gave my life to. This is what I did with my time. Was it valuable? So it's, it's a really astounding level of difficulty. And the fact that they achieved it is really brilliant because it's, it's hard to find to someone who hasn't seen Chorus Line and felt that the show is about something much, much larger than this very specific thing. You know, it, you have to remind yourself when you're watching it that the stakes are low. I mean, because they are low in some ways, you know, these are dancers auditioning for a part. They probably have another audition two days from now, you know, they will get a different show. It's not the end of the world if they don't get it, but you feel very, very much like it is the end of the world if they don't get it. It is, this is a life or death situation. And it's so effectively structured and so effectively uh, drawn and written to make you feel that way. So it's, it's a really cool thing. It's, and it's, 
not something I normally recommend because usually you want to be following the journey of a protagonist. It's just a lot easier. Well, and but it's an interesting point too, kind of twofold, because one, I think we think the stakes are so high because these dancers have wrapped themselves in the identity of being a dancer. And so when they're then asked to shed all that and talk about who they are as people, like it does it raises the stakes inherently because now suddenly we're investing in them as human beings. But what I think is so interesting about what you're talking about is like for all of the um, celebra celebration of the individual and uh, specifying those stories, for a show that is talking about individualism, it is ironic that it doesn't have a singular protagonist. Um, it is just the inherent irony of the show and the inherent irony, I think, just the the inherent meta-ness of what it is to talk about the show, what it is to rehearse the show, what it is to audition for the show. What I mean, it because it is attempting to be such a realistic and uh, unnatural show in that we, we, Michael Bennett was very insistent that we not see an orchestra, that it all feel like conversational and how the songs develop. And um, I think the great exception to that being what I did for love, which even though it does start off as a conversation, it does kind of feel like a remove, like a pop song in the middle of the show. That's not a negative critique on the song. It just has that, um, that top 40 kind of, um, you know, a song you'd hear on the radio type quality about it. Um, but it is, it's just, it's fascinating to me to discuss in so many ways because as much as it is celebrating the individual, it is also critiquing all of these individuals for being so wrapped up in being a dancer and that being how they define themselves. And I think in a modern context, it's hard to look at the show and not be like, wow, all these people really need to go to therapy and really need to be able to separate themselves from their job, which, you know, like work-life balance is not really great um, in in chorus line or frankly in show business i mean it is centrally criticizing and critiquing the structure by which broadway musicals happen and while also celebrating it and being a love letter to it and saying we love this and you know all that i mean it's why one is such a phenomenal you know crazy psychological number that we've spent all night and we joked earlier that i can never remember the name of the characters but in some ways, that's also kind of the point, because they come out at the end in all these traditionally gold suits and like, you know, spandex, the whole nine yards. And they're taking these bows and you have no idea who you're applauding for because they suddenly look all the same. And they're suddenly that individualism that we have come to know is totally gone. It's totally evaporated. And they are a part of this line. And they're that's all that we're applauding is the a mechanical and precise choreography that that rips them of their individualism. So it's it's such a wild um, meta, but also like revolutionary, but problematic way to go about making such a brilliant musical. Yeah, it's certainly one is a very, very ironic and dark moment, even though you're both, it, I can't think of a song that both celebrates the victory of these people and puts it in such a dark perspective at the same time. And of course the title of it is so brilliant too, because from being all of these individuals, they are now just this one mass, um, which is such a nice little sort of double uh, meaning there. And 
And it's just, it is a really stark moment, especially when you realize that they're not competing to be stars. I think you go into this sort of automatic zone where it's like, oh, if they get the show, they've made it. And and the finale really makes the point of like, no, they haven't made it. There's going to be someone who is the star dancing in front of them. Um, you know, nobody's really going to notice them necessarily, which is the point of what that number is. And the great irony of what they want, which is that they, they, they just want to work. They just want to dance. This is not about fame or stardom or any of the, the things that we conventionally think these stories are about. It's really just about people being able to do what they love and be paid for it. Yeah. I mean, and like, it's the kind of, you know, relating back to what I was saying earlier with why I got mine, what I just, I always go back to what my mom said, like fighting just to get by. You're fighting to be anonymous basically. And it's such an interesting, you know, it's such an interesting juxtaposition. And with one in particular, not to hop on to your brilliant insights into all the songs you do, but even in a musical way, there is a dissonance. There's a major minor aspect to one that it is like constantly dissonant. And yet you've got these wild trumpets that are like triumphant in the way that they're going about it. But that dun, 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 like that, that vamp that is now so famous is like goes back and forth between like, major and minor it's like wow we, it's like so central and but yet it sounds like this big classic broadway number and has come to be an anthem yeah. for broadway and yet it's like so messy and dirty and like not not like oh perfect happy what we think of it as it's such it's it really is it's mind-bogglingly complex uh in a way that i i just don't think people even really investigate and talk about no it's it really has become something slightly else in the culture than what it started as and yeah i mean i'm so glad you made the point about that those those chords and like the final chords are so uncomfortable it's sort of like it's not a it's not a joyous song and it's funny because i think it's also when you look at what we talked about in terms of the history of the show and all of these people pouring their hearts out um, and then getting a dollar and like a tiny, tiny chunk of the royalties of this super successful show for the rest of time that ended up for them being like, I think $10,000 was like the top of what they got for it. Um, there's something so ironic that what happened to those dancers at the end in one has kind of happened to the dancers that were involved in the creation of it in some ways too. Like their very personal stories, they're sharing all this stuff um, ended up making this thing in which they were kind of erased ultimately. And even the sense that like the characters are, the characters aren't named after them. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? It's like their stories and their amalgamations. I mean, it's not like they neatly took one per all one person's story and made them into that character, but like they're the driving influence behind the character, but then they have aspects from other people. I mean, it's such a, it's just wild. It's just wild. It's it's a little bit hard to read about the creation of this show and feel as great about the show as you did before you started reading about it. It's it's a very complicated process. And especially when you hear about the people that were at that first night that uh, were sometimes in the show. I think nine of them ended up in the show. Um, 
And then, you know, they eventually kind of left the industry, fizzled out. You know, the, the people who made a ton of money from the show versus the people who really, like, left a lot of their blood on the floor and then just never really ended up being able to make enough money to stay in the industry they loved. So there's just loops of sort of complicated feelings and difficult things about this show. And, and in, its, in its defense slightly, you know, one of the big benefactors of um, the success of Chorus Line is the public theater, which has built an entire, you know, they're incredible about supporting artists and new work and challenging work. And of course, it certainly fit into that when they were developing it, even though they did kind of have that momentary, like, Oh, we're not going to, we're not, we're not going to be able to do this kind of thing. So there there's even messiness within that, but it is, it is fascinating that they made such a big deal out of the fact that they were giving these actors money and like credit on some level for authorship, but really not. And you've got a lot of people who, I think in one of the accounts, like, you know, they, all these dancers would then go to auditions for shows in the future. And all these people would be sitting next to them and be like, well, why are you here? Don't, aren't you just like, don't you just have a ton of money from chorus line? Like, why are you still dance? Like, why are you still doing this? And it's like, no, actually, like there are people now with like houses in the Hamptons because of chorus line, but it's not the dancers. And we should note that before the most recent Broadway revival, the Bennett estate actually renegotiated uh, the deal points of the royalties with the actors. So now they have a bit more of a share of the author royalties from first class productions, which I think is great because it isn't entirely his conception. It's the conception of this group. And yes, he was leading it, but he was also quite a toxic leader by the most generous of circumstances. And uh, he is no doubt a genius and pretty much everyone who is involved would admit to that but they also like the way he um by their account manipulated them and by their words manipulated them uh is i thought it was an interesting kind of takeaway for me that so much of it was because he was not a confident director and so like he didn't really know how to speak to actors in strong acting terms and on top of it you're dealing with their personal lives so their like personal wounds and i mean but his style was very very problematic in the nicest of ways but just frankly unhealthy so the other interesting thing when it comes to chorus line is the original production and original choreography and costumes and just everything looms so large over the property that it isn't reimagined in its new productions. It's very much uh, a descendant of the original production. And some of that is because of the Michael Bennett estate who are quite inflexible when it comes to uh, new people looking at it or choreographing in a different way or any of that. Um, and uh, personally, I think the show suffers from that a little bit. I think it needs to have uh, a new look and let that exploration with it happen so that the strength of the material can shine. Um, but I feel like, you know, we talk about it and we use it as an example a lot uh, of, you know, uh, something that is holding the show back from its, you know, continued greatness, for lack of a better term. But uh, I guess, Annika, like, you know, if you got to reimagine Chorus Line, like, how would you do it? And, and do you think it should be reimagined? Yeah, this is something that's really kind of frustrating for me about this show. I don't really understand why 
given the genesis of the show and given its intention, which is sort of to represent the real lives of Broadway dancers, Broadway actors, uh, why they would be so specific about kind of freezing the show in amber, which is what they've done. I mean, you really have to use the same costumes that were plucked from basically the first cast and the people who were first involved with it in terms of like, you know, Donna McKechnie liked to wear this kind of leotard, liked to wear this kind of skirt. So that's what Cassie ultimately ends up wearing. You know, they've made these choices so specifically for the first group because they wanted this show to feel like it was these people, these these real people and what they wear and who they are and and have that that reality on the stage that it feels so strange to me that now you know, decades later, we're making every person who plays those parts have that same kind of like, oh, it's, we want this to be real and realistic, but it's still based on that very same person. So um, it's so, it's odd to me that they are as rigid as they are about this particular show. Because what I would say is, look, there's no reason to change the story of it. You don't need to, to actually draw from the lives of whoever is going to be playing it in whatever production because the show is now what the show is but I don't think there's anything in the show particularly that necessitates it still being 1975 1974 this time where it was originally built I mean why not make it dancers today make it have the costumes that look like what they would wear to an audition you know, make them feel like a group that just came in off the street. Make them feel like, in essence, who they will be playing these parts because you're getting the contemporary versions of those people. Um, and, you know, I'd be fascinated to see what a, a cool contemporary choreographer does with it um, because there's no reason, story-wise, that it has to be that original production. And I, I feel like plenty of people will still want to do the Michael Bennett choreography. I'm not sure many people will want to stick with the original costumes in all cases. I, some of them are pretty nuts now. I mean, it's really, it's actually kind of an interesting time capsule when you see it. And there's like velour stretch pants and like knee-high dance boots. And, you know, you're trapping poor Val who has to performing pigtails and high tops um, for the rest of time. I mean, it's just a weird, some of them are just weird. Um, but I don't, I don't know what the hesitation is. I, I don't think ultimately it's in the best interest of the show to protect it to the degree that it's been protected. And there, there's signs that there's, they're being a little more flexible. I think they let Donna Fiore do a new choreography um, up at Stratford, but, um, I think it will only make the show feel as fresh and as vibrant and as visceral as the show is if they allow them to make it look and feel like it's a contemporary show. Yeah, and I think it probably would necessitate some uh, cultural references in the script changing and updating a little bit. And um, yeah. there are certainly a 70s-like quality to the music and that original orchestration, I think, that does uh, feel very much of that era. Um, but I, I agree with you that I think it, it is one of those shows that to me, it's such a natural for, a, a new kind of look at it. Um, just because the, it, it is universal and I don't think its message is contained to the seventies, uh, as much as some of the things about it seem to be, I think it could have a real resonance, 
Um, you know, and in a way that, you know, I think of the recent Broadway revival of Fiddler on the Roof that kept m many of the iconic moments of Jerome Robbins choreography, but really allowed a new voice to then be brought to the rest of it. I think Chorus Line could really benefit from that because I think it also, and this is just my personal opinion, but I think a lot of the choreography is very uh, difficult for dancers and very athletic. Um, and but it doesn't always come across that way when you're watching it, I think. Um, it, for me at least, it's not always as thrilling to watch as it is to perform. And I think with a little more uh, of an eye toward that, I think it could be really exciting and great. And as you said, um, Donna Fiore got to do new choreography up at Stratford. I know Dennis Jones has gotten to do original choreography down in DC and also uh, at the Muni in St. Louis, which I um, happen to see and um, be a part of. And uh, so there is a, there is a, they have certainly begun to be a little more flexible, but I, I would be curious if this rumored revival does happen, if they um, try to blow it up as a lot of the recent revivals of the more classic shows have, or yeah. if they do, um, you know, enforce the original um, choreography on the production. I just would, I, it'll be interesting to, to see how that plays out. And now it's time for our favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things. Where we share some of our favorite things about A Chorus Line. So, Annika, who is your favorite character in Chorus Line? My favorite character in Chorus Line is Sheila. Now she's mine too. Sheila, come through for Sheila. Yeah, then, then I have a second option in case you were also going to go with Sheila because I feel like we have the same two. But since we're talking about Sheila, let's talk about Sheila first. She is such a badass. I think she is so strong. I love that she is a character who is a sexually powerful woman very clearly, but is using that sexuality in a way that feels sort of true to her. I mean, it, it, she's a fascinating portrait. And I think because Sheila is very much based on Kelly Bishop, who played her, um, I think it's a really good portrait of a complicated, strong female character that I just love. She's great. She also, I mean, her zingers are the best. Can the adults smoke is a, that's a great line. Like there's so much about Sheila that, and her backstory is really like, touching and moving and at the ballet. I mean, I think she's great. I mean, and honestly, it's uh, for as much as I joke about not remembering all the characters' names, like I I think Richie is absolutely delightful. And I, I it's hard to not shout out Paul. Um, Paul was gonna be my, my other one. I mean, that monologue is the heartbreaking. I mean, there's just, there's when it's done well, I mean, it's just like, I open my veins. Like it's, it's so, yeah. And I think Paul really is the emotional heart of the story. Um, you care about him so much. He feels so vulnerable. You, you, after only knowing him for the amount of time you know him in the show, you too feel like he is a special creature that needs to be protected from the world a little bit. And, you know, I think that having a, an element like that in the mix is really important because even though everybody's opening up, you don't see anybody be quite as vulnerable as Paul is just because the character feels that vulnerable. He's a great character. Well, I mean, and in a show full of like all these sweeping dance moves and 
dances and numbers and choreography and like songs and but like his monologue which is probably like four pages of i mean it, it's i mean it's it's incredible so what about what's what would you say is your favorite song in chorus line this one's pretty easy for me actually um since i was a little kid and therapists get ready um my favorite song in chorus line has been dance to heaven looks three <laughs> including fun fact about me when i was little and i was uh interviewing to go to school um because i grew up in new york city so all the schools are like cutthroat job interviews when you're you know four years old um that was my favorite song and my mom was terrified that i was going to go and meet with these like fancy school people and that i was going to be singing about tits and ass and then uh they would take me away <laughs> child services was going to come take me away <laughs> that is pretty funny although i if i were that administrator i'd just send you right over to the high school for the performing arts yeah. <laughs> um, like can you get me tickets well, and the great story too that we didn't tell earlier about that song is that it originally it was called Tits and Ass um, because that's the joke of the song. And early on in previews, it wasn't getting a laugh and no one was laughing at the song. And uh, they realized that it was because in the playbill, it said that there's a song called Tits and Ass. So it wasn't a surprise. So they renamed it Dance 10 Looks 3. Suddenly it was a hit and the song took off. So a fun, fun little story. Titles do matter, I would say. is mm -hmm. the the message of that um i think for me th i mean this is like so specific but i it's there are so many thrilling musical moments for me in chorus line but the underappreciated one i think for me is the end of hello 12 hello 13 um i the end right before give me the ball the like and suddenly i'm 17 and suddenly like i think it's so exciting and thrilling so i have to shout out that but we've all, and we've already talked about one but i i mean I, one is a great it's 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 thrilling I, it's yeah i love i mean it's a solid score and there are obviously lots of lots of winners in the score but i i'm going to shout out those two as my like split of favorite so what's your favorite miscellaneous thing about a chorus line well, I have to give a brief shout out to the many hilarious parodies um, that exist using Chorus Line. Um, but since I feel like I do that a lot, I'm going to go with something else, which is uh, that I think Zach and the way that they set up the power dynamic of Zach and these dancers is really smart and interesting in terms of having him be this disembodied voice for a lot of the show. Um, the fact that you're watching them in the way that he's watching, but you never see him for a while. Um, there's a really interesting framing of that character. And by extension, the, the role of a director or a director choreographer as, as a person who's um, shaping these people. And especially in, in Zach's case, he's drawing from them. I mean, it's kind of, that's another, additional layer up to this whole thing which is that you know zach is doing exactly what michael bennett did in that first session which is like asking these people to share except for he's not sharing himself and i just think it's it's so interestingly created and structured and 
for not a lot of text that is devoted to his relationship with everybody, um, you get quite a bit. You, you the fact that Zach was a dancer too. He comes from this world. He was one of them, and now very much he's not one of them. It's a really interesting dynamic that they set up, and I think it's a really cool thing about the show that they've they've done very well. And hard to divorce it from Michael Bennett and the role that he played, obviously, as you mentioned, but like it's not something they intended. It's not something that is like, it just kind of is what it is. And like, and in particular, the relationship with Cassie mm-hmm. um, slash then in the case of Michael Bennett, Donna McKechnie, who played Cassie, even though nothing was really explicitly happening with them at the time of the creation of Chorus Line, it is very clear that he, that she is a muse for him and that there is this relationship. And yeah, and we haven't talked about Cassie very much, but she is definitely... Uh, one of the most interesting and compelling stories in the show. And as much as Paul is a heart of the show, I think Cassie is also the heart of the show. So my favorite thing about Chorus Line in the miscellaneous category, uh, as much as we have uh, talked about the original staging and, you know, as iconic as it might be or could be innovated or whatnot, I think that a, the concept of the headshot moment that ends the opening number, I think is incredibly powerful when they all walk downstage in that single line with their headshots in front of their faces. Um, not only for being emblematic of what the show is talking about examining, but just the, the sheer power of that and the musicality, the, the bumps that happen underneath that is, are really powerful. And um, it's hard for me to not get chills, like watching that moment anytime it happens because it's so, striking in its simplicity but in how much it is saying which is you know emblematic of chorus line itself it's in its simplicity but in how much it is saying so it's a it's a very special and unique moment of musical theater and that means it is time for corner of the sky gotta find my corner of the sky where we talk about the show's place in the musical theater canon. So, Annika, why don't you open? What What do you think is Chorus Line's corner of the sky? I mean, it's there's so many to choose from. I think in the history of musical theater, when you look at the top most influential groundbreaking shows, Chorus Line is right there amongst the top. It showed the industry to itself. It proved that you could have... Uh, a hit that wasn't full of sparkles and spangles and um, fantasy. It was very realistic and about kind of everyday life in a, in a way. There's, there's so many things. It has that strange structure. It's, it's hard to choose, honestly. Well, and in many ways, I think what you're talking about too is like, it's not the first concept musical, but it is certainly the first mega hit concept musical. And the fact that like, you're not watching a traditional musical in the sense that we think about a musical, you're watching a concept and almost in a very, you know, obviously it started at the public, but in a very downtown, like we have a thing we're trying to say way. I mean, it is governed in a very artistic vision and idea of Michael Bennett's. And that is proving that, that that can be hugely successful and obviously then influential, but like it, it also, I mean, it's one of the first, it's like, it breaks the record for longest running Broadway musical, which it maintained for a very long time. Um, 
and like it becomes synonymous with Broadway in so many people's minds. Yeah. Yeah. All of those things. It really, it's got its own little corner of the sky, certainly too. It's, it's funny because there's, there's really kind of been nothing like it in many ways, which is interesting considering that most of the big shows that end up being super hits end up having sort of imitators in many ways. But um, while certainly like you can see some of Chorus Line's DNA and, and the kind of shows that came after, there's nothing quite similar. No, not on that. I mean, not on that scale, certainly not on that success level. Yeah. And that it is a truly an original musical and as dumb as this sounds, it really is a singular sensation. It really is. Like, it just is. It is. Well, that wraps it up for our deep dive into Chorus Line. But before we go, we have to know what comes next. What comes next? Or at least have a clue from Annika about what show we'll be diving into in the next episode. So, Annika, what is our hint about the next show we will be diving into? Um, I love this teaser for this next show, which is a show that I love. But here is the teaser. This show inspired a short-lived cartoon series that ran on television for kids and featured a rapping prehistoric flytrap. Huh, that is so interesting. I did not know that, even remotely. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> But I can't wait to dive in, but we'll have to wait till the next episode. So until then, we'll see ya. Bye, everyone. Kiss today goodbye. Bye, everyone. This podcast has been a presentation of Goodspeed Musicals, produced by the artistic staff and edited by me, Michael Fling. Our podcast would also not be possible without the generous support of the Sennheiser Electric Corporation, the Burry Frederick Foundation, Webster Bank, and the Richard P. Garmany Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. If you enjoyed the show and would like to financially support Goodspeed, please visit www.goodspeed.org. See you next time!